0: Welcome to CAE Catalyst Defense and Security Podcast. The word catalyst is most often associated with change. In the context of this podcast, we will be looking at the key drivers acting as a stimulus in bringing about results in the defense industry. CAE Catalyst joins experts from CAE and our industry to discuss relevant topics affecting our defense and security customers and community at large. From training to technology, we will discuss the catalysts that advance mission readiness. CAE Catalyst, Episode 3, CAE Enablers for Training Transformation. As global defense organizations face what many have referred to as the most dangerous decade since the Second World War, the link between effective training and mission readiness has never been stronger. In this episode of CAE Catalyst, We examine some of the critical enablers powering military training transformation, innovative new tools and approaches to learning designed to produce more graduates who are better trained, both faster and cheaper. We'll discuss how advances in the science of learning, including biometrics, cognitive performance measures and neuroscience are informing training system design. Our podcast will also provide a deeper understanding of how learning tools and practice integrate to deliver outcome-focused training systems tuned for efficiency, effectiveness, and affordability. Joining me today, two colleagues from CAE. First, Dr. Sandro Cielso is a human systems technical authority at CAE Defense and Security, leading the human systems research and development portfolio. He is an established innovator and multidisciplinary scientist in the areas of human systems engineering Human Factors and Instructional System Design. Dr. Shielsa received his PhD in Applied Experimental Human Factors in 2008 from the University of Central Florida. His research has concentrated on the validation and implementation of next generation training solutions for military and commercial applications to accelerate learning and enhance knowledge transfer. Also joining me today, Dr. Art Helmetag, he's a training solution integration specialist for CAE Germany, responsible for flight training operations throughout Europe and the Middle East. Prior to joining CAE, he created and managed a professional flight school in France, and he developed the first generation of 3D flight guidance displays, as well as a prototype for a stereoscopic heads-up display. Dr. Helmetag completed his PhD work in human factors from the Technische. Universitat Darmstadt in 1999. He is a passionate pilot with over 2000 flight hours, including aerobatics, mountain flying, parachute dropping, and he holds a seaplane rating. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us today. I'm excited to have you here to discuss this topic. I'd like to begin our conversation today with a brief review of some training transformation initiatives in defense. In other words, why is training transformation important? What is it and why are we talking about it here today? So let me start with you, Sandro.
1: Great question, Reagan. I mean, everybody wants training transformation as an indication of how we can push the boundaries of learning and really get to the point, ironically, to what was the ideal model of uh, learning, which is, uh, since the dawn of time, the master apprentice model. I don't know if you're familiar with it. You know, it's... uh, the model that shows that when compared to current technologies that we have a regular uh, classroom instruction or instructor-led training, we have such discrepancy on how knowledge and skill-based training occurs Occurs compared right, to that master-apprentice model. And there's a name for it, right? It's this two sigma problem. Uh, the two sigma problem, in sigma being a symbol for the standard deviation, And what it shows is that that original model of training, the master apprentice yields two standard deviations above the mean benefits in terms of training when compared to a traditional classroom environment. So when we talk about uh, training transformation, we're really talking about a way to use technology and different enablers in order to minimize that gap from that ideal model of training.
0: Thank you, Sandro. Art, over to you as well then, sir. The same question here as we discuss uh, a review of training transformation. and.
2: Yeah, thanks, Regan. Thanks for the invite. Let me come back to to the situation our customer is facing today, uh, which is pilot shortage. Uh, very, very important and impacted also by, by COVID. Uh, also, our military customers uh, were impacted. So there's a pilot shortage on the one hand. On the other hand, there are pilot students available who are now waiting for the training. So uh, now that COVID is over, we have a peak of people to be trained. And simply the customer does not have this capacity today. So we have to think about, rethink about uh, the training and the training means, as, as you mentioned. Um, on top of this situation, complexity of aircraft is increasing the complexity of missions is increasing and so the the amount of available active pilots with this experience need to fly mission they are not there to to train so um, we have to think about this situation and and find find solution one solution is go back to the tna training needs analysis Um, what is the input what is the experience of the cadet when it starts what is the output experience we expect and how we can optimize this cycle and uh, one approach we currently follow is to do more and more civil training if you want to train a pilot for example basic flying skills basic airmanship is something you can do with civil training so you can split the complete syllabus into a civil element and a mission element and where you need highly qualified instructors. And once you're into the civil approach and a different approach, you can subcontract to industry and industry can have innovative solutions that are integrated in this part of training, which for a defense customer is a bit more difficult because they need the procurement cycles and so on. So um, the flexibility industry is providing for this initial training is very high and that's where we connect with, with innovative training methods and tools.
0: Excellent points there. I, I really like your, uh, your thoughts on uh, innovative training techniques as well as tools. So we're gonna spend some time today talking about that specifically. Uh, and what I'd like to do is spend some time to discuss the links between educational tools and those teaching approaches as an enabler for training transformation. To, to initiate that discussion, then, I'll start with you, Sandra. if I could. Please tell us a little bit about your research into human-machine teaming as an enabler of improving student training and system performance outcomes, if you will. How might this kind of research help defense organizations produce more graduates, better training, faster, and cheaper, as we mentioned?
1: Yeah, so that's the holy grail of training, right? Better training, faster, cheaper, uh, high throughputs. And again, uh, going back to the original uh, model I described with the the master apprentice model. Part of the past few decades with technology has been the development of some of uh, these uh, types of online or tutoring technologies to support students, support training, right? And to enhance that learning experience with better multimedia, uh, with better uh, engagement, understanding that knowledge acquisition is not just recognition or declarative knowledge, that is, can I pronounce uh, a definition of something, right? It's about integrating knowledge. It's about developing those mental schemas that allows us to process information top-down, that is, holistically, and get to a, a good training. Uh, unfortunately, we all know that technology or even innovation in technology equates to better learning, right? It's the matter in which it is applied that matters. Uh, something I like that Arne said, you know, it's that the training needs analysis. is how you marry the technology to the learning that needs to occur given the, the task and the proficiency level required. What is phenomenal about human machine teaming research is that we're really looking at a paradigm shift where machines are traditionally seen as tools such as an autopilot that's there to serve you uh, to a point where machines are more like your teammates that you have to communicate, coordinate, collaborate with. And it's happening now, right? We have uh, a lot of um, enablers in in, uh, in technologies uh, such as uh, AIs uh, that allows us to dynamically, naturally communicate with synthetic instructors. And uh, this is the part that I'd really like to focus on today because I think that's going to get us to close the gap of that Two Sigma problem immensely in the future. So when you think about Uh, human-machine teaming as an enabler for digital training transformation, uh, you really have to understand how humans and human teams operate, right? And we have a great understanding of those dynamics. What makes intact high-efficiency teams work? Same, look for in the aviation domain, military aviation domain, Uh, the relationship between the student pilot and the instructor pilot is an important one. And an incredibly key element is the element of trust, right? You develop that trust, you trust what your instructor does, and eventually over time that relationship leads to uh, great benefits, uh, great skill acquisition. What we are doing in human machine teaming is to get that model and we want to measure trust and other higher-order cognitive or social constructs in real-time. So I'm going to open the door on that just a little bit. For the past few years, we've collaborated with a number of academic institutions. Personally, I've collaborated with the Southern Methodist University right in our backyard in, in, in Dallas. And we've done phenomenal work with them. We've shown and demonstrated and published that you can use biometrics to create machine learning classifiers that in real-time and objectively can classify different elements of how you're perceiving and processing information, which is critical for an instructor, right? The instructor is really keen to understand whether their students are paying attention to the environment in a, in a matter that's conducive to training. So that's an element where, where the human uh, really has a very strong edge compared to synthetic training overall. and But we're closing the gap because now we can provide those insights. We can digitize them. And we are at the cusp of this new frontier of research, if, if you will, where we are creating a uh, what I call a synthetic instructor pilot, a synthetic IP, where the students build a relationship with over time in simulation across simulation-based training events, and we can do it via unobtrusive biometrics. Uh, there is no calibration necessary, right? So we really use those COTS products where the 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 training the engagement is uh, is seamless. And now what you have is an instructor that see what you've done learns your weak spots or what you do well, and then adapts the training based on that. But not only that, it allows the student to literally talk to its synthetic instructor saying, hey, give me feedback. What what am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? So the most exciting part uh, for me right now is to really develop those technologies to allow a really effective synthetic IP. And by effective synthetic IP, I mean it needs to behave just like a human IP. So to me, that's the next frontier. That's what you know, the, 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 the research, the excitement of the research lays uh, in, in the human machine teaming domain.
0: Brilliant. I uh, really appreciate your thoughts on that uh, there, Sandro. Thanks for sharing. Please, uh, Art, if you would, give me your thoughts here on something that Sandro said, which I think is really important. And that's measures of trust. When we talk about training programs and relationships, of course, between instructors and students and, and, and you know, training providers, if you will. Tell me about your thoughts or tell me your thoughts on uh, the nature of trust and why that's important as we talk about training transformation.
2: Yeah, Sunra, I really like the, the future you're describing, especially when, when we talk about the, the classical training needs and analysis. Uh, we look to the syllabus. But we don't look to the individual. And what you are describing here is something you distinguish between people. I mean, um, you all know, you studied, you know, uh, your, your colleagues uh, in university. Some are faster on one thing, uh, slower on others. A pilot cycle is a five years or more training. There are also phases where you are disturbed by, uh, by other is- a- events. So uh, your attention, your performance is not constant. And uh, having this type of technology that's supporting these individual phases or, or performance uh, situations is, is a great thing. And uh, I think uh, that will really accelerate. On the one hand, sometimes perhaps this virtual instructor has to slow down, but at the end it's accelerating uh, and the outcome is, uh, is by far better. And as I said, the cycle is long. Um, you start with uh, theoretical training. So if there is a a student uh, less performant with air law, but finally uh, he's a smart flyer and uh, and, uh, catches up during his practical training and you have an environment that uh, supports this, overall you have a much better performance and uh, uh, I would say outcome. And Quality of training. Yeah. So uh, I really appreciate the the approach of Sandro. Yeah.
1: Thanks, Arne. And, and frankly, I just want to touch on something you said that I think is really important. When you train, when you when you want to try to adapt the training and and tailor it to the student, yes, it's very important. But something that really surprised me is that culturally, you know, some organizations, institutions, they're, they're very slow to adopt change and. Uh, Uh, What's great at CAE is that, you know, we have the luxury to access our own uh, schoolhouses and interview cadre of instructor pilots and and students. And at first I was expecting a lot of resistance when I was telling them, hey, look, this is the future of training, this is where we're going. And I was almost expecting them telling me, oh, you're trying to get rid of my job, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, so I was prepared for that. Uh, When I got there, after explaining what it is that we're researching, the direction we're taking. I was very surprised to hear some of the most experts, uh, instructor pilots say, oh, wow, that is going to make our life easier, because now I can get a student, I can throw them in self-paced training with that synthetic tutor or synthetic instructor pilot, and I can expect that student to come out with a basic fundamental understanding of all the tasks they need to know for that particular course so that when I take them on board the aircraft for a sortie, I'm going to benefit from that training even more. So I'm telling you right now, organizationally, yes, there may be some resistance in adopting some of these technologies, but I feel like from the people that are going to benefit from that training they are already on board so to me that was very refreshing and encouraging
0: great point and and i love the notion that uh, that our instructors that many of the instructors around the world in fact are uh, are eager for this type of knowledge and understanding and for this type of assistance to help them ultimately deliver better qualified aviators out there better qualified students if we look across all battlefield domains uh, because really, that's at the heart of, of what everyone wants, right? We all want the same thing generally, and we're all trying to just apply tools and technology and techniques to uh, to get there. And I think that's a great example to share there, Sandra. Thank you. Art, I'd like to turn to you for a moment, if I could, here. Please share some uh, information, your perspective, on how your flying training program leadership experience is helping military organizations realize their objectives. Let's start by discussing some of the measures that you're taking to help expand capacity within a training program, capacity being a, a concern of a lot of organizations around the world, you know, the ability to produce enough, basically.
2: Yeah, um, thanks, Regan. I mentioned already that this split into civil, classical uh, civil skills, flying, airmanship training gives the opportunity to have more flexible training. If a military customer is flying on a very specific military aircraft, he wants to increase capacity, he has to procure this specific aircraft uh, on top. This takes a certain time. If you download it to civil training on uh, civil civil, uh, aviation aircraft, you simply procure two aircraft on top and uh, you can increase your capacity. So um, this is is one element we, we currently do. But to come back to to the tools, I think it starts before the training starts. The selection process, it is a very important phase. Have a very good pilot selection, pre-selection, and perhaps also identify strengths and weaknesses. And when you start your training, you integrate them already, potentially into the system, into the courses. So um, it's a very, very early phase uh, before even the the student shows up in his first course. We know something about his skills uh, and uh, personal performance already, which can help us uh, to adapt uh, training. Then um, we have uh, all types of of simulation tools uh, today. If we go for civil uh, training, we are under constraints of standardization and so on but having additional training means for uh, self-paced training and so on which help on top to accelerate uh, train at home train at distance and whatever uh, situation the personal uh, the the individual is facing um, this can accelerate the training as well which is very important and uh, one element I like to add as well, because I speak about a very sharp split between civil and military, but if you integrate military instructors or experience into training systems, even during the civil syllabus, you are also downloading uh, parts of the training and uh, you can discharge the final mission training on the final uh, aircraft or uh, mission equipment which I think is, is very imp- important and helps increase capacity.
0: Let me ask on that, Arndt, are, are you finding customers that are willing to accept this kind of blended civil military model? And uh, what are some of their concerns in that respect?
2: Absolutely. We we have some, some customers who, who asked for this model. Uh, we have some customers applying it already. And what is very interesting, we expected that the military customer wants to see the civil syllabus, they want to discuss the syllabus, adapt the syllabus to their needs. But what we discover is, no, we outsource it to industry, it's your way to do it, we trust you, and bring us the cadets after one year, two year uh, of training and hand them over, But if you have better tools, different way to do it, if the outcome, the KPI, and the amount of qualified pilots at the end is uh, correct, do it your way. And this is very interesting and permitting us to apply the the new technologies uh, Sunwell is talking about. So we are not under any military constraints saying, oh, but first we have to explain it, we have to show it. No, they trust us and say, train those guys, do it the best way you can. And if you have new technologies, use them.
1: Yeah, Aaron, I really like your description of uh, how how the the TNA needs to be approached, the training needs analysis, right? Uh, One other thing that you mentioned that I think is critical, and we don't pay enough attention to it, is that of uh, pilot selection. Uh, And you mentioned that earlier.
2: And I would add, Sandro, it's it's not only the initial... Phase and selection and orientation. If this becomes fighter pilot or transport pilot, but even during the training, very interesting when you discover issues within with a with student. Okay, this is really weak. We we tend to kick him out. Retraining is not possible. But if you go back to to selection process and see, we knew this weakness, but he has other very good strengths. So let's bring him through to to get the strengths of the student. So even during the training cycle, uh, the selection can give very important indication on, uh, on um, root causes of, of this performance, but also uh, stick with, with this student and say it's worth to continue, even if uh, we invest five more uh, flying hours now, but uh, he is a strong performer. You know, that's a
1: great point. It is really important to understand from a competency standpoint how a student is doing as opposed to just task-based or syllabus criteria-based, how well they're doing. It's, it's about getting a better understanding of the, the baggage of skills or KSAOs, the knowledge, skills, abilities, and other characteristics a particular individual brings to the table. I think uh, that the, mod- the competency model is not utilized enough. Uh, it is more complicated, of course, to track. But Oren, I completely agree that, you know, this is perhaps a focus that would help greatly because then you can better orient that student based on their specific skills.
0: Yeah, really a key point to take away from that, I believe, is the the peril, let's say, of attrition. That attrition is a bad thing when we talk about capacity or constraints within a training system. Uh, You want to eliminate or minimize attrition as much as possible. And you do that preemptively by identifying those characteristics within students that might cause problems, perhaps create additional structures within the training programs to support those uh, concerns before they become really catastrophic issues or to identify those folks that are just simply not gonna survive within the program. And then you re them early uh, to avoid wasting that, that capacity or that space within a system. Really well said, appreciate the discussion. Go ahead, Sandra.
1: And yeah, sorry, you see, I was kind of itch, itching to say something else. I, I, I think Arne mentioned also, or was it you, Regan, the, the, the issue with, as, as you do training and perhaps you're not excelling, the remediation, the way re, remediation is implemented is really very suboptimal. And now we started discussing, you know, adaptive training, how we can adapt the training within a training event or across training events. And to me, that's another low-hanging fruit where tra- training transformation will, bear, uh, uh, will bring a lot to the table, right? You know, for, for many years now, we've been uh, playing with providing students either verbal uh, cues or visual cues based on how well they're doing. And since we're measuring their performance uh, in real time, we can stop the simulation if we see that there's a bad habit that's being formed. There's nothing worse than breaking a bad habit. Once you have it, it takes a lot of retraining. So finding the right remediation point to stop and freeze the training, whatever is happening, and say, all right, you're now doing something right, let's go back and let me show you how it's done. You know, implementing that, I think it's eminently feasible. I think that's something that really is going to make a, a big difference in training, and it does not even require you know the, the future of training with your synthetic instructor pilot. Something we can do right now,
0: Art. Let's let's hand that over to you then as we talk about the importance of breaking bad habits or preventing bad habits. Uh, with you working in the flying training space in particular, you have a little less flexibility to stop a mission in progress to arrest those habits.
2: I mean, today we we are downloading more and more to uh, to simulation training. So uh, that's where you can stop and freeze. Um, that's the big advantage. Usually we we'll start with uh, sim training and then we go to the live flying. If you have a bad behavior or, or bad habit uh, created, uh, stay on ground, work on it, and and bring this guy back in into the air. So um, that's where you can freeze it and uh, as as we discussed before and uh, this is also something to be tracked and followed with with data analytics well, what happened when because probably even if it's an initial training it probably happens again when he's in a phase four uh, fighter training uh, because this is a, a personal uh, a very individual uh, behavior which probably comes back so um Having it identified, uh, noted, traced, it can also help in the future to avoid it uh, the next time.
1: Can I bring an example? Because this is a a great topic. I love uh, discussing how we can really improve remediation. And, uh, you know, like Arne was saying, you can't freeze when you're an aircraft sortie right? It, it's a lot more complicated there. So ground-based training with simulation-based training event is critical. What we want to make sure, though, is that one when you freeze, it's the matter in which uh, you use training technology, coaching, and feedback that will make a good remediation experience. I can tell you right now something I've noticed that is a big issue uh, in Abinitio or you know other courses is uh, scanning, cross check even a a simple takeoff instrument cross-check. You know, I've got a lot of retired military personnel telling me that when there were students, their IPs, instructor pilots, were not paying attention enough how well they were scanning the environment. So they would build these poor scanning techniques and then, you know, along the line, someone was telling them, hey, I noticed you're not paying attention to this or that or it's the wrong order and they would fix it at that point. Now, what used to take you know, experience and time, you can inject that type of training early in the curriculum because we can track with eye tracking and other biometrics. We can exactly see what you're looking at in the order of how you're scanning the environment. So I think you know, we can make remediation so much more effective nowadays in simulation-based training environments.
2: Yeah, and Sandra, I would like to add, it's not only a question of good or, or bad instructor pilots. It's, it's the case in a side-by-side cockpit. But if you are in a tandem cockpit train, you don't even have access to his eyes. So eye-tracking is the only solution to really follow uh, what he's looking at, if he's focusing on the right things and with the right frequency. So uh, that's a great tool, I would say, uh, which an instructor simply can't do. Yeah, It's a unique technology for this type of uh, follow-up and identify failures and behaviors. Yeah?
0: Right, so that that's a really good point. Let's explore that a little further here. The idea that eye tracking is a technology that can be used Uh, with an improved instructional approach to help students achieve a better outcome, if you will. So uh, one of the focus areas for our discussion today is the importance of improving efficiency, effectiveness, and affordability here. So uh, I'd like to, to ask you both for your thoughts here on how these types of tools to expand a little bit more on this notion of applying tools and practices together to deliver Outcome based uh, training programs that are tuned for efficiency, effectiveness, and affordability, right? So the notion is that we put these together and we realize a much bigger impact than we have thought in the past, let's say, or we achieve some new level of capability that will help disrupt some of these problems. Let me start with you, Sandra. Give me your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I I, ha- I have a lot of thoughts. There's a lot to explore here, right? And yes, absolutely. You know, all these technologies are great. I think. With biometrics, COTS products are getting so much better, so much less obtrusive. They can be used in training environments much better. As I said, we use our academic partners to develop classifiers based on the information you can glean from those biometrics, whether it's DI or other wrist-worn sensors, getting a lot of great information to know their load, their stress, their engagement levels, so on and so forth. So all that information, you know, it's great insight, sure, for your future synthetic instructor pilot, but currently in debriefing situations, very important as well. I always like to bring up the example of uh, of two pilots uh, going through a training event and, you know, they both, you know, looking at syllabus criteria, they both pass, but one is calm, cool and collected, obviously ready to take on a lot more, and the other ones, you know, very stressed or barely made it. So on paper, they both get the exact same passing score, right? But now, thanks to insights with the biometrics and you can paint those gauges on dashboards, you can give that IP a lot more knowledge of how a particular student undertook a particular training event. So, you know, the applicability is immediate in my eyes.
2: Yes, absolutely. And I saw very interesting videos on, uh, on instructor uh, and uh, student faces during the training. And once more, the instructor can't. He, he sees his ears, but he doesn't see his face and his eyes. And uh, you immediately see when the, uh, the student was disconnected. Uh, I mean, enter spin, enter barrel roll. Uh, you see immediately, okay, this was too much. Let's do it again. Even if he left it, it was not under control. You saw in his face that it was not under control, even if finally you're horizontal again. And that's absolutely the point you mentioned. The end outcome is perhaps the same. But uh, the performance of both are completely different. Yeah. One knew what he did, and the other one <laughs> was lucky. Yeah.
0: Right. It's, a, it's like a measure of confidence, right? That the student actually has learned what you need them to learn there. And we're improving that measure of confidence, if you will. Sandro, I interrupted
2: you.
1: No, I was going to say, I was going to add a shameless plug on, on my research right now. Uh, we're trying to measure situation awareness, known as SA in real time. So situation awareness is very important in a lot of uh, dynamic has stakes domain, not just the military and flying, right? But uh, what uh, we've discovered was that that elusive construct of situation awareness that many times you see as a requirement for an IP to score a student on, on their grade sheet, now we can start objectively decomposing that construct and measuring it with biometric classifiers. We've published under, a number of papers in, in, in that regard, and, you know, we're very close to at least capturing a decent portion of that construct of say, at least in terms of perceiving the elements and information that are necessary for you to perform your task, and the second level of SA, which is comprehension. Once you're paying attention to your environment, can you put two and two together? Do you, do you understand what's going on? So that's another example of the power of biometrics, right? It's not the COTS device itself that's going to make the difference. It's how you you get the data, transform it, and get those diagnostic indicators that are going to be extremely valuable in a training environment.
0: Fantastic. Art, if you would, tell me a little bit about situational awareness training Situational awareness, in this case in aviators, but we can look across all battle space domains, you know, just an awareness of where you are in time and space and what you're doing, uh, and how you are approaching that training task, if you will.
2: yeah, I would say the uh, the situa- situational awareness starts very early, uh, also already in airditional training, but it becomes crucial uh, during missions. So um, synthetic environments, creating an environment, complex environment. Um, challenging the the cadet to to keep situational or achieve uh, situational awareness, I think it's crucial. Yeah, we didn't talk about uh, LVC, for example, live virtual constructive training. So the connection between, for example, an aircraft flying simulator on ground, flying missions, one real, one uh, synthetic, and red air simulation. So these are tools bringing the student to his limits and increasing his, his performance uh, experience, which I think is crucial for for his uh, real mission that he has to perform, uh, because uh, usually reality is is even more complex than uh, what all you have trained. Uh, you have to be fast, you have to analyze, you have to understand very fast, and you, you don't have a chance to do it twice. So uh, I think the this environment is extremely important, Tim.
1: Are an uh, absolutely great point on LVC and uh, also a limitation and something that I'd like to ask perhaps your feedback on. Uh, you know, simulation-based training event, you can, of course, control the environment exactly the way you want and, and load a student cognitively as well. But you cannot ever give them the fear of death the same way they have in the aircraft. And, you, you know, you lose a little bit there. So of course, there's different approaches and techniques to perhaps mitigate that effect. But do have you do you have any insights on how you could perhaps address that and instill, if not the fear of death, some kind of fear in a student?
2: <laughs> I would say we shouldn't frighten them during yeah. training <laughs> because else they they will resign and look for another job. But. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I think that to to be honest, I think there there will always be limitations. Uh, there will always be a limitation. There will always be a small part in your brain saying, "Fortunately, you're in a simulator. Fortunately, you're in a training session. Fortunately, this is not uh, an enemy aircraft in front who was hopefully not as well trained as I was." But I think this this final. At an adrenaline level, you will only get it on the final mission, but we can prepare uh, those people for, for the best.
0: I think, Sandro, it's, it's worth mentioning, right, that uh, we can never create a synthetic environment that will perfectly match the actual combat environment that these folks may be working in someday. I think one of the things that, that we like to think about anyway as we look at synthetic training environments is how to teach people to overcome stress giving them those individual tools those cognitive tools that they need to recognize when they're under pressure when they're feeling that kind of a threat and then w- finding ways to sort of work through it if you will and giving them the confidence that they can rely on their training and experience to face these dangerous situations and then thrive and survive
1: Regan, extremely great point and we hear stories in the news all the time it, 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 even to our benefit, right? Uh, so a, a lot of pilots using our simulators, and then they're flying a mission, and an accident happened, and they say, "Oh, I just remember my training. I procedurally went through all the actions instead of freaking out." So to you know, to your point, absolutely, uh, bettering that training environment with simulation-based training is is making a difference right now.
0: Awesome. Let's let's continue on our discussion here. I'd like to ask you both the same question if you would. Share some examples of science of learning initiatives. This is the training side, the the human side if you will. Science of learning initiatives you feel that are critical enablers for training transformation. Some of the things you're seeing in your space, some of the things that you have experienced, uh share your thoughts if you would on on science of learning initiatives.
1: Regan, the, there's a lot of uh, initiatives that, that we talked about, whether it's human performance, uh, the adaptive training, right? How are you going to address adaptive training, whether it's within a simulation-based training event or across with the adaptive syllabus? There's additional elements. You know, the something that's really important to me is to make sure the student is motivated in their training. Uh, you have the extreme in the classroom where you have death by PowerPoint. That's a phenomenon where the student loses interest after 15 minutes, sometimes much sooner, right? And you lose that motivation. There is no no learning happening at that point. So when you look at these technologies and how you can benefit perhaps even from the gaming industry with gamification, how do you instill that intrinsic motivation? Uh, Sometimes even simple things as leaderboards, where appropriate, you see, oh, how am I ranking compared to my teammates, right? I definitely want to be this guy. So that type of motivation that comes from uh, the gaming industry uh, with leaderboards, uh, with achievements, can really help. Uh, a long way to providing, a let's say, a more immersive, a more m- motivating experience uh, in training. Right. So go ahead, Arnold, I'm
0: sorry.
2: No, I, I absolutely share that. Uh, as as you mentioned, test by by PowerPoint is, is a great thing. Having tools, uh, but as as I mentioned as well, you can't bring always all cadets into the cl- same classroom, apply the same methodology. There are some you have to to do some session. Uh, In the simulator, uh, some is preferring to train at home, but the the key is to uh, follow and secure the outcome, I would say. And uh, that's what you mentioned, uh, Sandor. Um, You need data collection. You need to understand if the way and the tool and the methodology you applied is performant or not. Corrected in course, so uh, not decide in the beginning, okay, this guy does uh, self-paced only, and uh, we check after half a year if uh, if this was fine. So follow up. Um, but this is a chance to to improve and achieving the standards at the same time, even if the course is not standardized in in that sense, yeah.
0: Excellent points there. I appreciate the uh, thoughts on uh, data collection, in particular gaming and and finding ways to increase intrinsic motivation. Again, all of these are initiatives that are focused on the science of learning, really, on how human beings learn and how we can uh, use that knowledge of how how humans learn to create better outcomes in our training programs. And I'm going to use that as a way to follow on to our last discussion point here, which is to ask you both, again, the same question, which is for an example of educational technologies that you feel are critical enablers for training transformation. These would be the tools that are becoming available in the world right now. And Sandra, I'll start with you for this one.
1: When we talk about technologies that marry to educational technology initiatives, there's a lot going on out there, but then you have the, the shiny toy syndrome, right? The new piece of tech comes, Uh, comes around Uh, right now, it's uh, virtual reality, augmented reality, extended reality, mixed reality, any type of reality blend you want to have. Apparently, there's a gizmo for it nowadays, and it's going to make your life so much better. So uh, to our point, we understand how training is done, right? We understand there's an analysis that says, hey, this is how you use this technology to benefit the best from, from your training environment. But yes, absolutely. There's uh, some of these immersive capabilities like mixed reality. If you have a very effective mixed reality where, yes, your visual environment, if you're in uh, air domain, like you're flying, you have full 360 with those uh, VR goggles. You have full peripheral vision. It's great. And you also have the physicality of touching real chiclets and switches and, and, and all of that. So that muscle memory, that fine motor coordination that's needed on on some of those tasks, you can inject them using mixed reality trainers. And the benefit of a mixed reality trainer, such as, you know, we have a third generation mixed reality trainer uh, right now that uh, has shown to be able to download so much training from its more expensive uh, uh, simulation-based device, right? So I, I think uh, the latest analysis we've seen, we can, uh, we can train up to 80% of a syllabus using a mixed reality trainer. It, it's phenomenal because their cost is a fraction of the cost of uh, a, a big you know, full motion or weapon system type simulator. So to me, the application, uh, the, the, the diligent application of those emerging technologies, really understanding where the training need, and where it can be applied is really critical. It's gonna make a difference because yes, it's gonna lower the cost, you can buy more. So what's gonna happen, you can increase throughput as well.
2: Yeah, I, I really like the, the approach, uh, Sandro. And as I mentioned, the, the training syllabus, be it uh, aviation, uh, naval uh, or whatsoever is very long and it requires different tools. So as, as you mentioned, huge hype on virtual reality But it's not the answer for five years training. So, this analysis, uh, training needs analysis, but also follow up uh, improvements, uh, changing tools, coming back to tools. Also, see if for a certain student, a certain tool was extremely performant. Use it more for this one, bring it back in a later stage. I think this is what what we have to do. And uh, this connection between your technical knowledge, experience on future, technology and the link to uh, the training organization uh, who is at the end measuring the outcome um, this connection and this knowledge and competence is extremely important to make it valuable not only invest into fancy tools but at the end to have a huge outcome and an affordable outcome and not only uh, more toys for the boys but really uh, an efficient solution and that over again.
0: Brilliant, uh, no more toys for the boys, more of an efficient solution. I love the analogy there, Arndt, thank you very much. So gentlemen, we could probably spend the better part of a day discussing this issue even further, uh, training transformation and some of the enablers that we're seeing in around the world that uh, are powering that transformation is a topic of deep interest at CAE. And I know it's an interest of you both professionally as well as personally. So. Uh, grateful for your time today. I've enjoyed it thoroughly, and I look forward to future conversations here on CAE Catalyst regarding making defense training more effective, efficient, and affordable in the long term, ultimately better for our warfighter customers around the world. Thank you for listening to this episode of CAE Catalyst, defense and security podcast. We hope this content has been a stimulus to your education, thought, and understanding as we expand awareness of the significant drivers within the defense industry to support mission readiness.